Let me be honest with you. By the time the Christmas season comes to a close, I would have heard and sung joy to the world more than a hundred times. I would have heard the statement, remember the reason for the season more than a hundred times. And I would have heard the retelling of the birth of Jesus Christ more than a hundred times. This year, pandemic or not, is no exception. And admittedly, it does get tiring. I've seen all types of shepherds on social media videos, fat and thin, tall and short, sheep that are real and sheep that are stuffed animals. I've seen all types of baby Jesuses, from real babies to dolls to a rolled-up towel. And for the first time in recent memory, I saw the wise men depicted as a British lord, a Chinese emperor, and one who just put on a woman's black shawl as a cape. I think the mothers of the children portraying the wise men didn't quite talk about stylistic similarities. Why, of all the stories, is the Christmas story told and retold so often? And it is the most reenacted story amongst all Bible stories. I mean, I don't see the reenactment or retelling of David and Bathsheba, the healing of Naaman, or the story of Nehemiah's rebuilding of the wall isn't told too often. Well, I believe the reason the story of Christmas never gets old or should never get old and something we should never tire of is because the Christmas story presents two major problems we all experience as human beings, and it offers up solutions to these problems. So let's see why the Christmas story is a story that should never get old and a story that is worth retelling over and over again and not just in December. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 2. Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 2. We're going to study this verse, and this verse will identify the two problems that we as human beings all experience. And this verse will also identify why Christmas offers a solution to these two problems. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and we take a look at the first part of verse 2, which identifies the first problem that we all experience. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The spiritual and emotional condition of the people of the prophet Isaiah's time was such that they were in despair. For the people living in the land of Judah, when the prophet Isaiah ministered to them in this chapter, was still the pre-exilic time. They were under the constant threat of foreign oppressors like the Assyrians who were advancing from the north and the developing power of the Babylonian empire. It was in this context and setting that Isaiah spoke about the coming deliverer, the coming Messiah, who would change the fortunes of the nation and lead them to fulfill the promises given by God to Abraham and David in unconditional covenants. In fact, if you look at two verses back in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22, and Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, you get a sense of what the world was like. And I read these verses. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. Look at the heart condition of the people in the time of Isaiah's writing. Trouble darkness, gloom of anguish, distress. Take all of these words and put it together, and what you have is the word hopelessness. Their problem and our problem is that we walk in hopelessness. We walk in hopelessness. And the imagery used to describe this hopelessness in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9 is darkness. The people who walked in darkness, they were hopeless. Now, why is the imagery of darkness used to describe hopelessness? 
because there's only one solution for darkness. And if everything was completely dark, there is nothing you and I can do to deal with the problem of darkness without an outside factor giving us a solution for darkness, which is light. Try going into an unfamiliar room that is pitch dark, and there's no one to guide you, and you can't use your senses to make out anything. You have the feeling of hopelessness for sure. You'll have the feeling of fear. You can't yell out, I have $5 million in my wallet, now make it undark. No one in there is listening to you. No one is there to take your money. You can't say, I'm the smartest person on this planet, so let there be light. No one cares who you are because no one is there to help. In fact, it doesn't matter if in that room you have all the tools to make light. You can't see where to find those tools. Without light, in an unfamiliar pitch-dark room, you can't find the match or even the batteries for the flashlight, which you can't find. And this is why darkness is used to describe hopelessness. And darkness can be used to describe the hopelessness of the world in which we live today. We don't know where to turn. There isn't someone who we can trust. There isn't someone who we can trust to lead us or knows what they're talking about. Now, they may be confident and offer reassuring words, but we know that their words are untrue or they fail us. And there doesn't seem to be a solution to today's problem or a real lasting solution. This dreadful life that we live just keeps on going without any hope, and we can't see the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. I remember the story of a man despairing of happiness in life, and had climbed up on the railing of the Brooklyn Bridge in New York City. He was about to leap into the river when a policeman laid an arresting hand upon him and drew him back. But the man protested the policeman, saying, You do not understand how miserable I am and how hopeless my life is. Please let me go and let me jump. The kind-hearted officer talked with him and said, I'll make you this proposition. You take five minutes and give the reasons why life is not worth living, and then I will take five minutes and give my reasons for why I think life is worth living, both for you and for me. If at the end of ten minutes you still feel like jumping from the bridge, I will not stop you. The man then took his five minutes, and the officer took his five minutes. The result was at the end of ten minutes, they joined hands and both leaped from the bridge. My friends, hope is not an argument. You can't win hope through an argument. Hope is a great instinct of the soul. You can't just say, have hope, things will be better, because the question can then be asked, how do you know? You and I can't give hope just with words. It comes from the inner soul knowing there is a solution to the problem. And so the only solution to the problem of darkness, specifically the darkness of a hopeless heart, is light, the light of Christ. Now you may say, Pastor, why spoil the mood of Christmas by talking about such depressing things? Why do I need to know about the hopelessness of mankind and the darkness of this world? I just want to hear about happy things. This is the most wonderful time of the year, isn't it? But my friends, this is the reality of the sinful world in which we live. It is a hopeless world. There are people who are genuinely hurting during this season behind the smiles and the festivities. Pastor Andy Stuart wrote, Since we're in the holiday season, I was reminded of a sobering truth. Many will spend Christmas without a particular loved one for the first time daughters without their mothers, sons without their fathers, 
expecting parents that will never get to hold their child, husbands without their brides, wives without their grooms. What hope do they have? While everyone feasts, laughs, and hugs their loved ones, where will they find celebration? Let us who are enjoying the presence of family stop and ask the Lord to be particularly close to those that are hurting during this holiday season. Psalm 13, 18, For the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. Russell Moore, in his article, The Problem with Our Holly Jolly Christmas Song, writes, Sometimes I learn a lot from conversations I was never intended to hear. This happened once as I was stopping by my local community bookstore. It's a small, quiet store, so it was impossible not to eavesdrop as I heard a young man tell his friend how much he hated Christmas. To be honest, the more he talked, the more I understood his point. This man wasn't talking about the hustle and bustle of the holidays or about the stresses of family meals or all the things people tend to complain about. What he hated most was the music. He said, we ought to make sure that what we sing measures up to the narrative tension of the Christmas story. This guy started by lampooning one pop singer's Christmas album, and I found myself smiling in agreement on how awful it was. But then he went on to say that he hated Christmas music across the board. That's when I started to feel as though I might be in the presence of the Grinch. I'm sure this man had thought this for a long time. For him, the tranquil lyrics of our Christmas songs couldn't encompass the terror of the world. I think he had a point. Some of the blame is on our sentimentalized Christmas. Simon the prophet in Luke chapter 2 never wished anyone a holly jolly Christmas or envisioned anything about chestnuts roasting on an open fire. But what about our songs, the songs of the church? We ought to make sure that what we sing measures up with, as this fellow puts it, the narrative tension of the Christmas story. You see, the first Christmas carol, after all, was a war hymn sung by Mary. Mary of Nazareth in Luke chapter 1 sings of God's defeat of His enemies, about how in Christ He had demonstrated His power and has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. There are some villains in mind there. Simon's song, likewise, speaks of the fall and rising of many in Israel and of a sword that would pierce the heart of Mary herself. Even the light of the Gentiles he speaks about is in the context of warfare. After all, the light, the Bible tells us, overcomes the darkness and frees us from the grip of the devil. The first Christmas carol was a war hymn. Moore continues, By not speaking where the Bible speaks, to the full range of human emotion, including loneliness, guilt, desolation, anger, fear, depression, we only leave our people there wondering, why they just can't be, quote-unquote, Christian enough to smile, and why they, like Charlie Brown, still feel unhappy when they stand to sing Joy to the World. The gospel speaks a very different word. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In the kingdom, we receive comfort in a very different way than we're taught in culture today. We receive comfort not from faking cheerfulness or trying to drown out the throbbing of our soul with holly jolly sentimentality. We are comforted when we see our sin, our brokenness, our desperate circumstances, and we grieve and cry out for deliverance. In a time when we seem to learn of a new tragedy every day, the unbearable lightness of Christmas 
seems absurd to the watching world. But even in the best of times, we all know that we live in a groaning universe, a world of divorce courts and cancer cells and concentration camps. Just as we sing with joy about the coming of the promised one, we ought to also sing with groaning that He is not back yet, sometimes with groanings too deep for lyrics. The problem is the darkness of hopelessness in this world, and it is not a problem that can be covered up with fake happiness, temporary festivities, Christmas lights, and songs. We are not after or should not be after superficial happiness that goes away after Christmas is over. We want a joy, a hope, and a happiness that is real and permanent. And Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 gives us the solution. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Look how the light is described in verse 2. A great light. You know, a little light is good enough to dispel the darkness. But the description in the Scripture says it is a great light that has come. You see, there is a great hope for the people, and it comes in the person of the promised Messiah. In fact, Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, applies this messianic prophecy to Jesus, who would bring hope in a time of hopelessness. And how is Jesus a hope to the people of Isaiah's time, in the time of Matthew, and in our time today? The hope of Christ lies in the fact that Jesus is God Himself, come in human form, and He is able to do all that we're looking for Him to do, to right the wrong to provide an eternal, secured future, to allow the good to prevail, and most importantly, to be our Savior and to deal with our sin problem. You see, the great hope in Christ is hope in a person and in what that person is able to do. Let me repeat that. The great hope of Christ is hope in a person and in what that person is able to do. Isaiah chapter 9 focuses on the person of the Messiah. Matthew chapter 4 focuses on the person of Jesus. And today with our issues, we should also focus on the person of Jesus and the hope He provides as the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself is able to do the impossible. He showed that when He conquered death and rose from the dead and proved to all that His death on our behalf really did save us. And that's why we place our hope in this Jesus, the Son of God, who can do as He says. So, my friends, whatever depressing situation you're in, Jesus can do the impossible as He has shown Himself to be able to do as He is God, and you can turn to the hope that is in Jesus Christ. The object of our faith and our hope is upon Jesus Christ. Years ago, a small town in Maine was proposed for the site of a great hydroelectric plant since the dam would be built across the river, the entire town would be submerged. When the project was announced, the people were given many months to arrange their affairs and relocate. During the time before the dam was built, an interesting thing happened. All improvements ceased. No painting was done. No repairs were made on the buildings, roads, and sidewalks. Day by day, the town got shabbier and shabbier. A long time before the waters came, the town looked uncared for and abandoned, even though the people had not yet moved away. One citizen complained, where there is no faith in the future, there is no power for the present. The town was cursed with hopelessness because it had no future. 
Where there is no faith in the future, there is no power for the present. Some of our lives are like that. We do not recognize the great hope we have in Jesus Christ, one who has secured for us our eternal future. We do not focus on the person of who He is and what He has done and what He is able to do to give us a wonderful, wonderful future. No wonder our lives in the present are so dreary and hopeless. The Christmas story is so beloved because it is the story of the solution to man's problem of hopelessness. And it was because the great hope of Jesus Christ had come into the world as a babe of Bethlehem. My friends, what hopeless problems do you think you have today? You can find solution to your seemingly impossible problems in the person of Jesus. You can have faith in Him because He is the Son of God, God Himself. You see, if there's no faith in the future, then there's no power for the present. And we can live in the present with great hope and gladness and joy because in Jesus there is great hope that our eternal security is assured. Look with me again at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, specifically the second part. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. With typical Hebrew syntactical parallelism, Isaiah further describes this hopelessness in a similar but different way in the second part of this verse. A second problem presented is that not only is there the darkness of hopelessness, these people are living in the shadow of death. Death would be coming to them as the Assyrians would be soon coming from the north. Because of Israel's disobedience, God allowed the Assyrian Empire to conquer the northern tribe of Israel in 722 B.C. This dreaded army was coming over to conquer them. We know this from the context of verses like chapter 9, verse 1, where it talks about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. They would come from the north. And for sure, the people understood this and knew the inevitable course of their lives. It was just a matter of time before they were defeated, conquered, and killed. The people of the north knew they were as good as defeated and dead. They were indeed living in the shadow of death. In the same way, this is the world in which we live. We are all destined for hell. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 could not be more clear. All have sinned. And Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Now, some of you may not agree with this or call this unfair that everyone deserves death because of their sin, but it is so. Wage is what we deserve, and we all deserve death. If the standard of heaven is pure holiness, then one little sin is enough to discredit us from heaven, pure and simple. So we all are destined for hell, and we all deserve it. I remember a few years ago, I was preaching and teaching in Dumaguete. There, a liberal theology professor from Siliman University wanted to debate me. He believed in neo-orthodoxy and had subscribed to Barthian theology. Anyway, he proposed to me this question. He said, Pastor, I loved my grandmother very much, and she was a very good and loving person all her life, but she never accepted Jesus before she died. How can I say that God is a gracious and fair God when he allowed my loving and good grandmother to go to hell. I knew that it would be a debate trap to talk about the fairness of who gets into heaven from man's perspective, because one's goodness is subjective without a standard. So I told him, sir, I'm very sorry to hear your grandmother never knew Jesus. 
but I know the one who created heaven is the one who gets to set the standard for entrance into heaven, not us. And I went on to tell him, the truth is, that standard is pure holiness. And everyone is deserving of hell because of sin. There is no one deserving of heaven because of sin. And it is unfair that people are saved when someone else who committed no sin died on their behalf. So when people tell me it's not fair that people go to hell, I tell them it's unfair that people go to heaven. That is why it is by God's grace that we are saved. You see, the second problem that each one of us has in this world, as identified by Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, is that all of us are on a death march. Every one of us is on a death march. There's a popular TV series about zombies titled The Walking Dead. I don't watch it, but it's an apt title for the condition of the people of the world today. We are all walking dead in real life. For the moment of our birth, we're all headed towards death. Do you ever look through the lenses of this reality where every person you come in contact with in your life, your friends, your coworkers, your colleague, your loved ones, your family members, everyone that you see is destined for hell because they can't save themselves. We can't save ourselves, and we certainly can't save them, and they don't know the true Savior. That is the reality of the world in which we live. When there is no Savior, we are all living under the shadow of death. We are all part of the walking dead. Part of our country's sad history during World War II was the so-called Bataan Death March, where more than 10,000 prisoners of war died from being forced to march from Marveles Bataan near Corregidor to San Fernando Pampanga, a march of about 97 kilometers. Imagine yourselves as one of these soldiers. As you see your colleagues fall one by one and your fate is similarly sealed you can't do anything, or if you try to run, you will be gunned down. There is no hope. You are hoping against hope that you will make it to the end, but it is hopeless because everyone seems to be dying. That is the problem of mankind. From the moment anyone is born, they are on a death march, and all they see is death and destruction. Now, you may again wonder why such a sad, depressing thought has been presented on a Christmas weekend. But the problem has to be presented so that the solution can be appreciated, and there is indeed a wonderful solution. Look at me again at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, specifically the second part for the solution. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. The solution to this problem is that the light of Christ has come upon them. Notice that not only have they seen a great light, but notice that in this, the imagery is the proactive shining on these people. The solution has come to them. The Savior is accessible to all. That's the very core message of the Christmas story. Everyone who is on a death march has access to the Rescuer because the second person of the triune Godhead, Jesus Christ, came as the babe of Bethlehem so that Jesus Christ, the Savior, can be accessed by all. Novelist Anne Rind had mesmerized a student audience at Yale University with her prickly ideas. Afterward, a reporter from Time Magazine asked her, Miss Rand, what's wrong with the modern world? Without hesitation, she replied, never before has the world been so desperately asking for answers to crucial questions. 
And never before has the world been so frantically committed to the idea that no answers are possible. To paraphrase the Bible, she continued, the modern attitude is this, Father, forgive us, for we know not what we are doing, and please don't tell us. My friends, the very solution has come, but the world does not want to listen. They go to look for answers in all the wrong places. But the Christmas story is about the story of the solution to the world's death march. Jesus Christ became one of us to rescue us from the death march we're on. The light of the world is here. It's shining right into our eyes, into our faces, and yet many still don't want to look at it. They put their hands up to shield the light, and we do not acknowledge it. And yet we sing wonderful songs about Christmas, a holly jolly Christmas, and we shun the light. The Savior has come, the solution to our death march problem. You've probably never heard of the island of Molokai. Well, it's located in the state of Hawaii, and it has quite a history. You have to go way back to the late 1800s to understand its significance. You see, back then there was no cure for the highly contagious and deadly disease called leprosy, a disease that would attack the extremities of the body, the ears, the toes, the nose, the fingers, a horrible, deadly disease which today is curable, but it wasn't back then. So in order to keep the disease at bay, in order to keep it from spreading and creating an epidemic, the U.S. government would send lepers to a colony on the island of Molokai, where they would be secluded and isolated from those who were not affected with the disease. Well, in 1873, there was a young, brave pastor named Pastor Damien, who volunteered to spend his life serving the people secluded on the island of Molokai. When he arrived, he was startled to see people who are not only suffering physically, but socially and emotionally and spiritually. In the leper colony, he saw extreme drunkenness, immorality, abuse, and an overall sense of hopelessness. What he saw were people who were desperately needing to know the answer to a question we all ask, where is God? They needed God's presence in their life. And so in 1873, Pastor Damien lived among the 700 lepers on Molokai. Knowing the dangers, realizing the inevitable result of so much personal contact with a highly contagious disease, he built hospitals, clinics, and churches, and built some 600 coffins. And the whole while, he was giving them the answer to that question, where is God? And whenever a church service was held, he would stand up in front of the lepers and would warmly and lovingly address them as, my dear brethren, but then one morning in 1885, at the age of 45, in a clear, calm voice, instead of my dear brethren, he began with, my fellow lepers, I'm one of you now. You see, it was out of love that a humble pastor became one of them. Out of love, he gave those lepers a gift that would change their life for all of eternity. He shared with them the answer to the ever-present question, where is God? And the only way he could give them the answer is by becoming one of them. My friends, that is what God did when He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, God Himself. When He took on incarnate form, He became one of us. The Savior has come. The death march is no more. And those who embrace the Savior has moved on to a march of glory and victory. Let me conclude with what Jamie Shell writes. 
The Christmas season brings out some very different reactions in people. Joy, longing, stress, sadness, reunion, loneliness, and other feelings and attitudes. But no matter what we're going through at this time of the year, Jesus can meet us in all of those places. In the popular Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, a line of the song reads, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. All of our hopes, the good, good things about life, laughter, family, love, purpose, all of these are met in Jesus Christ. Everything we have ever longed for, everything that we have wished for, every single ounce of joy and beauty and gladness that we have ever wanted in our hearts are all found in Jesus. In the same way, all of our fears, the things we dread, the sorrow we face, the depression and sadness of the world, all of these things are answered and conquered through the life and death of Jesus Christ. Every single question and concern, every worry and every single struggle we have in life are covered by the grace and love of our Savior who died in our place on the cross. My friends, as you and your family celebrate this special season, commemorating when God came from heaven to earth and the coming of Jesus, remember that His birth is the answer to everything that we've ever hoped for and that His death has conquered everything we've ever feared. The Christmas story never gets old, and it should never get old, and we should never tire of retelling it because it gives us a solution to mankind's problems. We have a problem of hopelessness where we struggle and grasp with what we cannot see. And we have the problem where we're all in a death march, whether we want to admit it or not. But the solution to both problems is the Savior, the one who grants hope and provides life. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 gives us the imagery where the light dispels the darkness. It is not the pretty lights of Christmas that saves. It is the light of Christ that brings true hope and salvation. That's why Christmas is about lights. It is a celebration of the light of Christ. The light of the world has come. So if you have a problem where you're walking in hopelessness, remember the solution is the great hope of Jesus Christ. Focus on Him. If your problem is that you are on a death march, remember that a Savior, a rescuer has come. Place your trust in Him. And in case there's any doubt who that light is that dispels hopelessness and saves us, the prophet Isaiah writes in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So, my friends, may the Christmas gifts remind us of God's greatest gift, His only Son. May the Christmas candles remind us of Him who is the light of the world. May the Christmas trees remind us of another tree upon which He died. May the Christmas cheer remind us of Him who said, Be of good cheer. May the Christmas feast remind us of Him who is the bread of life. May the Christmas bells remind us of the glorious proclamation of His birth. May the Christmas carols remind us of the song the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest. And may the Christmas season remind us in every way of Jesus Christ, our King. A very Merry Christmas to each and every one of you. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we celebrate Christmas because the Savior has come. Thank You for providing a solution to our hopelessness. Thank You for giving us life when we were on that death march. And Father, if there are those who in this time 
have not placed their trust in you. They are mired in hopelessness, and they do not admit or recognize that they are on a death march and find no hope. Father, I pray that they would make a decision to place their trust in the Savior who has come, the Rescuer who has come to bring life. And so indeed, it may be said of each and every one of us in our lives, in our families' lives, a very Merry Christmas because the Savior lives in us. Thank you, Lord, for Christmas. Thank you for coming to save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.